I'm Anna Parker. And I'm Miriam Chancellor. Welcome to Big Mistake, the podcast that unpacks the failures and mistakes of top professionals. So, to make us, and hopefully you, feel better about the mistakes we all make in our careers and lives, we'll be talking with high performers to understand the behind the scenes and less glamorous moments of the business world. How's your week been? Well, uh, good. Well, I've just had Invisalign fitted today. And I feel like uh, a teenager with massive braces in my mouth. They're not braces. They're an invisible shield that shapes your teeth back into place. And it's okay, but you made me take them out for the episode. I did, because without knowing, both of us are getting Invisalign put in this week. Yes. And my appointment was meant to be today, but I moved it because I knew we were interviewing someone. Because <laughs> I didn't want them in my teeth. And I did, you, apparently I did sound like I had a lisp. It was very bad. Yeah. Well, should I put them in? I'm going to put them in. Okay. This is, this is I. It I, takes a couple of days to get used to it. Right, I think you have to start, oh, you push it at the front. Uh, ouch. Okay, so they're in now. And the problem with Invisalign is that, yeah, as you can probably tell, my speech has changed already, particularly around the S's. So... <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to take a while for me to get used to, but boy, oh, this is so tricky. So, well, now they're in. That we're going to do the rest of this intro with them. In. We are definitely okay. doing it with it. In. Oh gosh, they're already starting to hurt. So literally, I had them put in about two hours ago. So they are very, very fresh. But you know what? I think you know it's so out of whack with how much we care about how we look in this way versus how much other people actually care. So it's actually a good test of vanity for me that actually this is so not a big deal, having these big things in my mouth, which are quite visible, I think. You're you're nodding. They are visible. Okay, thanks for the support. I'm frantically trying to think of questions that make you say words Mm. that will make you Yeah, well, that will come out in the rest of this discussion. Anyway, I'm going to hand over to you, Anna. You had something to share about your week this week. Why don't you share with it what it is? I've got a couple of things. First thing is, last week, I went pistol shooting with work for the first time. Pistol shooting? Okay, from someone who has absolutely no idea between the difference between a rifle and a pistol. What is Firstly, what is a pistol? I mean, I'm not going to know a lot about it. Uh, okay, yeah, but, but what I, type of gun are we talking Is it one that goes up against your... No, no, your... hand revolvers. Uh, okay. And then you went through all the different ones. So they even had muskets. I shot an AK-47, a Magnum 44... I had never held a gun before, and my hands were shaking the whole time. Okay. Completely terrified. Pause, backtrack, set the scene. Why on earth were you holding this gun in the first place? One of the underwriters that we work with, he um, came to do a liability session with one of the founders of the company. I helped organise it. It was more of a roundtable discussion. And And things escalated, and Anna pulled out her gun. (laughs) Stuff's and, about to get serious, and one guys. Of the suggestions I had, or conditions, let's say. So when I suggested as underwriter, hey, come do a liability suggest uh, session with all the staff. We'll talk about um, professional indemnity, directors and officers, all the things I geek out about. He said, not overly keen, oh. <laughs> even though it's his job. <laughs> And I said, what about if we go shooting? Because I know he likes shooting oh. and I know he likes guns and he goes hunting and all those sorts of things. And he said, yep, yeah, I'm keen now. So it was more of a, 
teaser, tempter, bribe, whatever you want to call it. Come hang out with us for the afternoon and we'll also go shooting. That's brilliant because he knows that there's this undertone of business happening, yes. but he but he's still enjoying himself along the way. So yes. he was prepared to have that conversation when it came down to business totally. at the end. That's really smart. Thanks. And you've done that before, haven't you, with other clients? I like people to have a really good time when they do something. So I understand that not everything to do with business is going to be exciting. Particularly insurance. <laughs> Particularly insurance. For some, let's say. Yeah. Not me. Not you. Over it. You love it. <laughs> but... I want to make people feel like it's worth driving from Tauranga to Hamilton yeah. to come talk about liability in front of a load of staff for a few hours. Mm. And then you're going to get this really exciting thing at the end, which you've never done before. And he hadn't done it before. Yeah. Anyway, there was this one particular gun, the Magnum 44. So we, which was a very big gun. There's a video. I how big, video. How big, okay. Will you put the video on our Instagram? Maybe. So uh -huh. I got shocked by the gun because uh -huh. it had such a big kickback. So when you shoot it, uh -huh. basically my entire arm and the gun went back. And I got, I was, I was terrified of the gun before I went near it. I shot the gun. I was even more terrified. So I kind of dropped it, which is really not the ideal oh thing dear. to do with a gun. Because you're, you're at risk of it going off when uh, you drop not it. Not really with a oh. pistol because you have to kind of hop, like click it the back. Trigger. But anyway, it's just not the most ideal thing to do. It was rather dramatic. Oh gosh. So okay. That's the video. So... So this is also a business meeting. My heart is racing now, telling you the story about what it was like to shoot these guns. Wow. And my heart didn't stop racing the whole afternoon and evening since I got back. It was that terrifying. If I, there was a war situation, I would not be the best person to put on the front line. And I should really work on my spy skills as opposed to gun skills. Uh, but that was my I would still want you on my team for a war. Oh, yeah. What's that? But I wouldn't have you uh, up the front with a rifle. I'd have you being like the team leader. I'm not sure what I've got friends that are in the army, but I don't know what the technical term is in the military for someone who commander. Colonel. Uh, colonel. OK. Well, you know. Yes, you know. So I'd want I'd see you as a colonel as in someone that is yelling instructions to the infantry. Inspiring there we are, the, the troops. Inspiring the troops, yeah. You Telling would be, them what to do. Yeah, and you'd be a tough love kind of colonel. The only thing that I will say is maybe a sniper might be easier. Ooh. So it's got less kick. So I could see ah. myself potentially being that sort of person ah. in a war situation. I, I don't know. I hope I'm never I hope I'm never there. Do you know what? I um I heard this it was some video on Instagram I think and they were talking about bad nicknames for people, uh, and someone called in and said that he worked with someone whose one foot was much shorter than the other, and the nickname for this person was Sniper's Nightmare. <laughs> because he just kind of... And he walks. Is that bad? Maybe. Nah, that's hilarious. It's a funny joke. What was your nickname? Spanner. Spanner? Anna. So, Anna Spanner, I am getting, I hope the listeners are too, so much enjoyment hearing you struggle over words. I know, for the first time in my life. Mm. Yeah, this is really hard to speak through this on, particularly the S's. Anyway, maybe that's a sign that we should wrap this up. No, I've got more exciting things oh, to talk okay. about. Oh, okay, well, quick, quick, okay. tell me. Here I am talking about <laughs> so, nicknames. So, 
My other exciting news for the week was I had this incredible referral. So getting referrals from clients is always amazing. But this one was a really big international company that's looking to expand to the US, has very precise insurance requirements. Amazing. And a lawyer said, actually, your insurance um, is, is getting bigger. The program's getting bigger. The insurance requirements are really niche. You have quite a lot of liabilities and exposures here. You need to go talk to Anna. So they referred them to me. Go and, and talk to Anna Banana. felt so good to have a lawyer say, wow. actually, it's really technical. Insurance is very difficult. You really need to go have a discussion wow. with Anna. That's so cool. What good. a win. Yeah. So is that because other insurance brokers are not... They don't have that technical knowledge that you. Uh, you I, they, de they definitely do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that there's um, something to be said about a broker who used to be a lawyer. I think there's just I just see things yeah. maybe differently. I've got a, a different understanding. I don't know. There are many incredible brokers out there. It's just that not everyone used to be a lawyer. I'm very conscious, by the way, in business, and I, I learned this from an early days that my success is not based on the downfall or dissing others. So people, so often people take an approach in business, which is I'm better because I will explain to you how the others are awful. Oh yeah. And my approach has never been that. It's just to say, this is who I am. This is how I geek out about insurance. Yeah. This is how we're a bit different. Um, but it's never really to turn my sights on what anyone else is doing. So that question that you asked me was a, what just reminded me of that, which is right. I really don't turn my sights on what others are doing. I'm no, just no. doing my own thing. And I've got two things to say. Firstly, we've just said something that I'm really struggling. Is this so we're going to hear you cry? No, but I'm very close to it. Um, your other nickname? Yes. Hawkeye. Oh, yes. Because you have an amazing ability to... That's a recent one. Ah, oh, to yeah. spot, like, inaccurate, tiny inaccuracies in, in yes, big word I documents. Yes, things differently. Yeah, can, which is the lawyer coming through Yeah, as well. I can spot things. The second thing I was going to say was... So one of my favourite phrases um, from that friend who says it, they'll say, Hawkeye roll out in an email, and when oh, they're asking that. me to do something, and I love That's it. That's very cool. Yeah. The second thing I was going to say was that as you're talking about... The fact that you just focus on your abilities and what you can do and the magic you bring to insurance. You and I were having a conversation literally in this room at your house a few weeks ago. And you said to me, I made a comment about something that I'd observed. Maybe it was on the spectrum of being quick to judge something or a particular scenario. Anyway, we won't go into detail there. But, but you said to me, Miriam... The only thing you can do is focus on your inputs. What everyone else does, they are responsible for. So you can't control them. You can only control what you do and what you put out into the world. And that is honestly, I don't think we've talked about this since, but that has stuck with me. And I, I'm not joking. I often think about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's really true as well. It's Once so you true. start focusing on what you're doing and less on what others are doing, everything becomes a lot easier. And actually, it reminds me of one thing my mum used to say when we kids were growing up, and that is uh, their response is their responsibility. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because that's a particularly hard phrase to say at the moment. Their response is their responsibility. In other words... Yeah, again, you can't control what other people are doing. You can only control your own We're having this insightful, deep conversation, and I'm just looking at you like you're a very special human being. I know. It's almost hard to take you seriously. I know. It's funny. Well, as I said, I think it's good for... It's a good test of character, having these monuments. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, well, it was a funny thing, because as soon as they went in, she handed me the mirror, and I was genuinely shocked about how visible they were. 
I thought they'd be a lot more discreet. So anyone thinking about getting Invisalign, just be mindful of that. But then, then I caught myself thinking that way and started to feel a bit self-conscious about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Miriam, like just grow up. Like Others genuinely won't care about I know. it. I'm only caring about it for the audio quality of a podcast. <laughs> yeah. The intro hasn't mattered. It's just yeah. when we were interviewing someone who had travelled over here to share their story. I just thought professionalism should be at a high. The fact that we're talking now, it makes no difference. No, you're right. You're right. But and that's it won't the thing. make a difference to any other person you meet. Correct. No one else will care. No, which, go, which, which speaks volumes about other aspects of our appearance right like when we have those days where it's like oh my hair's not looking the way it should or i don't have makeup on you're the only one thinking absolutely everyone else is thinking about themselves (laughs) no one's looking at you thinking oh they're not on top form today they're they're just thinking about their own insecurities and their own things that they've got going on in their life and and in a way that that rings true for me is i think about to, to test that i consider how much time and effort I spend thinking about other people and it's like nothing totally so I'm like I'm not special so no one's thinking about this way about me so it's a very liberating realization to have isn't it so on that note we will pause there and say we really hope you enjoy this episode with the one and only Greg Brebner from Blunt Umbrellas we enjoyed it it's a little shorter than usual Greg has an amazing ability to get to what it is he wants to say quite quickly. So we were able to kind of, there was a lot of toing and froing throughout. So we were. So you'll hear in the episode that I completely fangirl over his design, over the umbrella, massively love the product. The interview ends and he says, here you go, Miriam, have an, have an umbrella for free. <laughs> yeah. He brings along one That just summarised everything you need to know about our relationship, basically, which is me just saying, everything's amazing, love your product, huge fan, had it for ages, and then they just turn to you, here you go. Here's the one, I've brought one umbrella to this episode with me. Miriam, you haven't. The lesser, well, not a lesser fan, but I don't currently personally own one. So in his defence, that's what he would have been thinking. Like, I want to, Miriam, to join the, the fan of... Well, the, the club I of think rewarding loyalty is also out <laughs> of Well, Greg, we know you'll be listening to this, so Anna's expecting another one in the mail before soon. No, she's not. No. Uh, anyway, on that note, enjoy the episode. We, we certainly did. And we'll see you back here for episode six. Now, what would you like to drink? So um, M- Miriam did end up getting you some very nice beer. Well, a little bird yes, told I'm me that you're a fan of... Sawmill, yes. Sawmill Pilsner. Yeah. So, does that sound one. okay? I love one, great, you. great. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Pleasure. Oh, well. You're welcome. It's great. Um, <laughs> but I'm actually, firstly, quite flattered because when we first met Greg, you said, Oh, I've already listened to Big Mistake. You listened to CB's uh, yeah. episode. So, how did you find it? Did you get anything? Did you get anything out of it in particular? Absolutely. No, I thought it was. Um, Awesome. I think the theme is amazing. And I think when you talked to me about the podcast, the theme relating to Blunt, I just was like, what's our big mistake? What have we actually done that's major? Like, we still exist, so obviously we haven't done anything too major. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's just, just, I guess, with Blunt, the um, the way we've gone through, the biggest mistakes as such would be just about how we've burned a bit more time than we probably needed to to get to certain phases. Okay. Yeah, so it's been more slow and steady with Blunt. Yeah. With, with the, um, the build of it. So, Yeah. 
couple of things I had is that I think I'm one of your very earliest customers. Really? And I bought, because I bought a blunt umbrella and I was looking at it. I was trying to find the receipt. When was it? It was around oh. 15 years ago. And it is still the same one I bought. It exists and it looks great and it works perfectly. Wow. Yeah, that Which is exactly why you created really Blunt. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, exactly. The lifespan is huge. Yeah, wow. yeah. And because of that, so not only do I have that one, but then wow. when you love something, you then get the golf umbrella mm. and the different variations yeah. of it because it works. Exactly. And that, yeah, love, that huge... love is interesting. I like to talk about that. Yeah. That's really interesting yes. to love a product. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I am genuinely a huge fan oh. of your products. Oh, awesome. So that's really nice yeah, yeah. to have you along That's really today. nice. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Um, the only comment I would have is that when is a... <laughs> is this some constructive criticism? Yeah, from I need that. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Because I use them so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I need a folding version. So you've got the Metro yeah, yeah. for handbags. Mm. I need a miniature folding one. Is that possible? We have actually um, made one. Um, about five years ago. Yes. But it didn't quite pass the QC test at the end oh. of the day for usability. And it's just that balance with trying to put all the goodness of blunt into a really compact form. And we tried really, really hard. And there's nothing to say we won't do it in the future, but it's a real challenge. What was yeah. what was the where did things go wrong or what didn't work? It's just there's just um, I guess constraints around trying to put all our technology into a form that's actually strong enough. Because the reason blunts are so good is because there's good engineering mm. in it. Yeah. And the smaller you go, the more detailed every little component becomes. Mm. And you just know the lighter and smaller umbrellas are, the more flimsy and rubbish yeah, they are. Yeah. So, um, so that's that's where we struggle a bit to, to get really small. Well, not struggle, but it's just um, that's the balance. Yeah, sure. But but you can you can always get there. It's just we haven't probably gone deep enough just yes. yet. I saw that blunt umbrellas have been described as the Dyson that's of umbrellas. Did you, have you heard that? Um, I have heard it, okay. but it's a great compliment. He was such an inspiration for me. Like, wow. Like, yeah, massive. Tell us about that. Um, well, I um, I guess I always wanted to be an inventor, like from day one, and um, there's not many sort of I guess examples of people that have taken something from a garage and gone through to make them sort of a real international product. And I remember hearing about them in the '90s and just being super jealous, thinking I want my vacuum cleaner, I want my version <laughs> of my vacuum cleaner. And then when I got to London and saw the umbrella, I go, my God, that that could be the same sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, it had the same sort of feel. It's like it's an everyday product that just had been the same forever. Just the frustration. And then it could have a different flavour attached to it. So, um, yeah, huge inspiration. And I read his book. Like, I was down on the journey getting really frustrated, getting nowhere with designing this damn umbrella. And then my girlfriend at the time, his mum, bought me this book. Um, it was James Dyson's, basically, how, to, how he went down his path. And that was the reset. It was like, God, i got to do something different here to get success. Wow. So, yeah, a big part of my journey. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's huge. Was it a... Because I gather it was over your OE that you had this that the idea came to you mm. was it a gradual realization or was it more of a light bulb moment that it that, that the idea came to you i think because before i got to london or back in new zealand i was trying to find products and work on them but um nothing seemed to stick like the ideas just weren't good enough for some reason i don't know why but getting to london just being in that new environment and i got there and within the first month i was on umbrellas right because i got there and just saw them everywhere which you don't really see here in new zealand and the pavements are very narrow so you're having to navigate through spikes because I'm a bit taller than spikes. <laughs> so not trying not to get my eye poked out. I definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And that is your world in England as yeah. well. You're Massive. getting poked in the eye all the time yeah. from umbrellas. And yeah. it's like, how many other products would you be allowed to walk down the street with with spikes at people's eye level? Mm. That was my first thought. Mm. It's like, this should be illegal, right? <laughs> so then it was like, yeah, an umbrella should exist that doesn't have those points. But then it should be should work as well because they're like mm. breaking and, and people are frustrated. They're falling inside out and they just 
basically looked like shit because they're mostly mm. broken. Mm. And um, just thought they're a fashion statement. Every other piece of fashion people are paying good money for, if this had the good design attached to it as well, then it could just bring back its mojo. Because I think they were big things back in the day. People paid lots of money for them. But over time with mass production, people lost respect for mm. them and they're just treated like rags. You throw them away when they don't work. But definitely not a blunt umbrella. Because you know when you walk into a building and you can leave an umbrella at the front door? Yeah, you, I never yeah. leave a blunt. <laughs> there is no way. I always think I'm not leaving $100 by the front door. Um, that's been dried, put back in my bag. <laughs> I know, that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's not just about... Uh, it's it's You're as much risk of someone picking it up as you are, are just losing it somewhere. That's that's the next thing in my mind, is some kind of tracking or reminder. Like, do you drop your umbrella off and take some tag with you to your... I mean, because they're so such yeah, a good yeah. product, you just mm. don't want to lose them. But yeah. the number of umbrellas, I think everyone's no doubt lost an umbrella in their own time from just leaving it in a cafe yeah. at some stage. I think but you would as a cheap one. So exactly right. Yeah. Growing yeah. up in the UK, I went through umbrellas and they didn't cost anything. Never gave it a second thought. But yeah, I've had the same blunt umbrella for 15 yeah. odd years and taken really good care of it. And it's expensive. It's not left by the front door. And I'm thinking about it quite a lot. It's like <laughs> your sunglasses, right? You buy cheap sunglasses from the gas station, you loan them for two weeks. But if you mm. actually pay four or five hundred bucks, you will look after them. So. You're right. The yeah. awareness. Yeah. You've written, or I read somewhere that you said, after 18 months of failed radical prototyping, I came to the realisation that a successful solution needed to respect the incumbent. That's when I started to make headway, and I didn't stop until I got it. And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on what it is you, you mean by that comment. Yeah, so um, I guess when I looked at the umbrella to start with, I thought, everything's broken about this thing, and I need to fix everything on it. So I thought, I don't want to be influenced by anything that exists to start with and um that was a big mistake because i went for 18 months just trying to reinvent what a, i guess a shield would look like from the weather as opposed to an umbrella uh-huh. and then um yeah about 18 months in when i read that dyson book i was like no no i've got to look at what exists now and just take the bits that are good and then work on the bits that um that are crap make them better Great. yeah and that's it that's where i got your way but i've since heard that most successful products do have that 80 percent of familiarity to them uh-huh. and just the 20 percent sort of that sort of fraction so, so, you're, so you're designing this product, yeah. you've read the Dyson book, yeah. what's the moment where you think, oh, this is going to be a winner, I'm onto something here? Yeah, I think it was, because I'm an engineer, it was working out just exactly what's going on with the materials, and working out that that fabric on it needs to be pulled tight, and that was sort of the fundamental, so I guess that is what blunt is. It's like this, this canopy that's pulled tight like a wing, so in the wind you've got this beautifully balanced thing, as opposed to a big floppy sail. So that was really the concept, I think, that said, yeah, I've got to do that. Did you have people around you saying, I don't think it's going to work? Yeah, most of them. Really? Yeah, everyone thought it was crazy. Because I, I did this funny thing, right? Because I, I got into it and thought, I've got to make this happen. So it was like, I tried all these other ideas. The umbrella is a good idea. If I can do it, it's going to be successful on the market. I just believe that 100%. And um, so I thought, I've just got to sort of set my own head into this. That this, I'm going to do it if it's the last thing I'm ever going to do. Wow. So setting visions, like walking around London, just looking at different scenes, just thinking, this umbrella looks amazing. People are going to love using it. And then everyone that would listen to me, I told them I was reinventing the umbrella and in the pub, anyone, like my friends. So it was this weird sort of mode I got into of just trying to convince myself that this has happened before it happened, you know, that sort of thinking. So, um, so yeah, it was just the mindset, I think, going into it was huge. That was probably the big part of it, to set the journey going. It would have been hard not to be put off or swayed by the negative inputs that were coming your way. Do you consider yourself someone that is quite focus and and that doesn't typically tend to get put off by what other people say or think 
because I just imagine, you yeah. know, for the average person, that would be to hear time and time again, you're crazy, you're crazy, crazy. What are you thinking? No, this is not going to work. That would put a lot of people off. But, mm. you know, for years of, of trialing, trial and error, you eventually got there. But how did you maintain that, that focus and that sense of direction throughout all the negative inputs? Yeah, I don't think people were negative at that level. They were just like, you could just tell that they were like, God, what are you doing? Right. But um, I think the hardest bit is just getting into it. Like once you've put six months into anything and you're on a journey and you can, you've got the vision of what success looks like, you're just so committed, right? You've got so much emotional energy behind you that you're not going to give up. So I think it actually gets easier rather than harder, like mm. further down the track. Like five years, how long? It's like the first six months is probably the hardest. Mm. So if you can push through that and you've got a really strong vision of what your success looks like, and you haven't failed, then why wouldn't you keep going, right? Yeah. I heard somewhere that pro- progress is the number one motivator. Yeah. So if you know if you're always making headline, no matter how small. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that's really the whole premise of this this podcast, right? Is that we learn from failure and the mistakes along the way. But if you're making progress and if you feel like there's a sense of direction, and you yeah. can t- at least take it to the next step. Yeah. But I'm sure investors, you know, they wouldn't have been jumping up and down to give you money. There must have been some hurdles there, especially in the early days. Oh, massively, yeah. And, um, yeah, because it was my own money to start with. And then, um, yeah, to get the investment really had to sort of prove that it was had a valid, I guess, a place in the market. So, um, so yeah, the, the story goes is that I got the product right, got a patent on it, so it's actually a product, and then knew that going to China wasn't really an option because the manufacturers over there, so I got some information about China and yeah, the market was or the industry was sort of made by manufacturers who were just ruthless. So they um would just steal your idea and you'll get nothing for it. So there wasn't really an option just to go to a manufacturer and license it or anything like that. So then um the next step was what what do we do? So at that point I got a partner, um, Scott Kington. Um so he came along and was really into it as well. So we started first thing we thought we've got to make them we can't get a manufacturer we'll just do it ourselves so we did it in our garages so we made 200 of these things and it was horrible yeah <laughs> talk us through yeah. talk us through a typical yeah. day what does it look like you wake well, up you and scott in the garage yeah well so we um got some parts out of china for these umbrellas got some canopies made locally by a lady on her sewing machine and then it was a case we had our day jobs then at night going into the workshop or on the kitchen bench sort of putting these things together and just not having a clue on how to do it. So using super glue for bits and like gluing our fingers together and stuff. <laughs> and finally getting these products and going to market. So we got a couple of shops in Auckland that were keen to take it on. And they sold. They started to sell pretty quick and we put $99 on it, which was huge, right? Back then no one paid that money for an umbrella. And um, it was all good. We thought, oh, well, we're in business. And then the next sort of storm came through and they just started to fall apart because they were built so badly. <laughs> so that is a mistake, right? But at the same time, it was validation that people would part with their money. And that's huge, right? To actually put people to part with their money for what mm. you've got is just proof that you had a concept. So from there, we could get the investment, which is coming back to your point. But getting investors is, is you know, that's a relationship, right? It's not money. It's a relationship. So um, so I we... You, I think we can guarantee that I do not have one of your umbrellas that was made for the garage. No, 2006. <laughs> so that's the first one. <laughs> people come in, like now, and go... This thing's rubbish. It's like, I don't know what the big deal is about these blunt umbrellas. And they've got one of the early ones from oh, back in the day that's wow. put together with super glue fumes. It's so funny. <laughs> Man, that's going to antique now. I know. Honestly, there's should... only a few of them, yeah. Wow. I've only got a couple of them left, but they were, they were pretty crap. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that was sort of the start of customer service for blunt, mm. which has sort of evolved quite a bit over the years. But yeah, the investment piece is um, interesting. Like we thought initially, oh, let's just get everyone we know to put a little bit of money in then it won't be too much of an investment for them to get us going. 
but that would have been the worst nightmare in the world, right? Having that many investors in it. So luckily we didn't do that. So we got some a couple of investors in who have been with us since, and they've been phenomenal. Wow. So, but yeah, to get that relationship right, there's so much more than the money, and I think everyone just focuses on the money at those points in time. So, yeah, been brilliant. But um, yeah, that alignment again, more people in the room, like you just want fewer people <laughs> saying their bit. That's um, that's really important, I think, for a business. Yeah, it was quite difficult getting out there with a product that costs so much more than mm. everything else around there. So it was really about people experiencing it. So um, so getting it in the pe- hands of key people so they could talk about it and the PR was huge like we couldn't afford to advertise at all so um, so it was really just about getting it out there and getting the right people talking about it and because an umbrella is actually quite interesting as a PR story so we got tons of stuff written about us so really good like Wall Street and Wired magazine and things like that so um so that was sort of got us I guess on a stage international stage and then um from that we got quite a bit of attention I guess globally from people wanting to distribute it so we actually grew quite quickly in terms of um a global footprint but the issue with that is if you go too wide mm, too quickly, you just true. become really thin and just don't really have the understanding of the market you're selling into. And even though you've got a good product, if the product market fit isn't there, you're going nowhere. Mm. So um, so that was um, quite a few years of that. And it, we were growing, but New Zealand market always grew so much better than everywhere else. And it's because we're in it and we understood it. So I um, always thought from day one it had to be a global thing. We had to go everywhere to even make it stack up. The reality is the New Zealand market alone has been quite a phenomenal thing, right? Yeah, like that everywhere. So, um, yeah, so we sold 90-something thousand units last year. So it's like, where do they go? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's the New Zealand. So, um, so yeah, so that's always shown the potential of it. But globally, it's just seems so much harder, right? So to have these distributors out there trying to do what we're doing here, having the same understanding of the consistency and the brand and everything, um, we just really went up to managing. It was actually really difficult. Because you just need to understand so much more about the market. Yeah. And on that note, I was interested to read about this idea of a village strategy, which yeah. is perhaps a good segue into to that topic. Can you explain a bit about what this village, village strategy is and how it relates to particularly your, your various markets? Yeah, for sure. So uh, that's about the depth of the market. So success always comes from how deep you are in a market, not how wide you are. So if you take like, um, say... The US, for instance, you go and attack it and think, oh, I'm just going to take on America with our product. Or you go to New York and you get into a borough that you know has the right people with the right, I guess, the right money, the right weather, the right um, commuting habits, all that sort of stuff. And those all align and you have a village, you can pounce on that and you'll have way more success than you will be going to all of America. So then when you go into that village, you just look at all the different touch points that your brand can have on those people. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the shops, it's about the school, like get get amongst all the school teachers, you know, the PTA, the people that talk about it, yeah. and um, the local corporates, you get in there and sell to them. So if you can get all those different touch points and then people start using them on the street, you get that concentration of users, people identify it more because it is about that shape because yeah. the aesthetic is everything, right, when it comes to identifying brands. Wow. So we just call it a village strategy because it's about focusing your energy in the market mm-hmm. so that you do get that concentration so you get that organic growth. And otherwise I suppose, yeah. oh, sorry, carry on. No, otherwise, it's just a big push. Like, you actually want pull. So you want people out there talking about it. Mm. Like, you're talking mm. about, like, you might be at a dinner party talking yeah, about your umbrella. It. And it's like, who does that? They surprise themselves, oh, right? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, especially in the early days, people would be like, what do you do with that umbrella? And I'll say, oh, that cost me, you know, $100. It stayed in my handbag. I have a little bag because it's wet to put it into. And everyone would be interested. And I'm like, this umbrella is amazing, but I'm not leaving it by the front door. So you... So, yeah, you definitely start a conversation piece. Mm. Yeah, that's the power, the PR side and word of mouth. And I suppose you even get those localised weather differences, um, differences across different 
villages, so to speak, as in I'm sure that, you know, even in New Zealand, we know that certain cities rain more mm. than than others. Yeah. So somewhere like Auckland is going to do, and Wellington is going to do re- reasonably yeah. well with, yeah. <laughs> with selling umbrellas. Absolutely. And it's the frequency of that rain too within a, like an annual period because people want to invest, or they're only going to invest if they know they're going to use it for a certain amount mm. of time. Like if you live in a t- city where there's like six month, um, a month of monsoon and that's it, it's dry for the rest of the year, why mm. would you invest in an expensive umbrella? So exactly. there's, there's different, yeah, yeah. different courses. Yeah. Awesome. And another thing is that I know that you do the UV umbrella now, mm. but you didn't used to, but because they were so beautiful, the umbrellas, yeah. I never minded using them to shade me from the sun, especially having my English skin. So I, I use it all the time, especially for the UV thing during the summer. I would probably use it more in the summer than the winter. Huh. Because in the winter, if it's raining, you kind of put your jacket up. Yeah. But in the summer, yeah, it's always with me it's out. the shade. Yeah. So what version do you have? Do you know what the model is? Or? Uh, the one above the Metro, I think. Okay. And what's the colour? It's blue. What's the Light blue. Compactable? No, they're no. not. It's, it's, there's a full one. Yeah. There <laughs> are small ones. Oh, well, I mean, it fits yeah. in my handbag. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the... Yeah, That's no, what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, the UV one, it's interesting because it's almost like a cultural thing to use the umbrella in the sun. So it quite, it's coming on, like Australia, big time because of the sun issues over there as well. But yeah, it's um, it's always asked for, but it's always seen as like a parasol. Like we sort of, I guess the, <laughs> the performance, it's windy, it's raining, you know, the hard weather. That's what Blunt sort of designed for, but the sun's always seen on a bright day where you just want this light little thing made yeah. of paper. So, mm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So... If we were to, and we've already touched on a, f- a few m- mistakes already, but if we were to say to you, Greg, what is a big mistake that yeah. has come to you? You know, you've been thinking about this question for mm. a week or two now. So what what comes to mind when we say what is a big mistake that you or, or Blunt has made? I think early days, um, just putting a lot of pressure on myself to do more than I needed to in terms of um, that design. Like I'm um, trying to innovate everything. Mm. I think that that was early days. That was probably a bit of a mistake. If I'd actually just could stand back and see the wood for the trees a bit more, I think that that would have helped a lot. I'm trying to get to where I was going. So paint us a picture. You're how old? You're are you still in London at this point? Talk us through a day where this this lesson is is active in your mind. Okay, so it's probably not a day. It's probably stretched out over like three weeks of trying to make a prototype for something that's just this crazy concept that was never going to work. But just the effort it takes on the floor of your flat in London to make something with your little egg beater drill, trying to get, I got materials from a kite shop in, in Covent Garden and, and all these sort of things. And just, yeah, the effort and, and the, yeah, I guess the highs, the highs of thinking you've got something to start with, going through it and then starting to realise you're kind of wasting your time here, but you better keep going just, just in case you can learn something. And you get to the end and you just throw it in the corner in disgust and go to the pub. <laughs> just, just that emotional journey. Like I went through that a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Like there's ups and downs. So I think, um, yeah, there's there's learnings in it, but a lot of it wasn't learning. It was just a case of just doing my head in. Mm. So um, yeah, I think that was sort of mentally not very healthy for me. Yeah. Did <laughs> you did you have an outlet or did you have someone that you would talk to during this time or a mentor that you know you could say, hey, an, another failed experiment, or no. you on your own? I think it was a very private journey. Okay. I think I just go inside my head a lot. I think I thought I could sort of think my way through this. And I think that was um, part of the reason for doing like a product. Is I wanted. To, I guess I had entrepreneurial sort of ambitions, but knew I wasn't the um, traditional entrepreneur in terms of skill set. Like entrepreneurs are out to the world, right? And they go out and find solutions and things like that. Whereas I was more about in my head thinking things. So, so I kind of knew that. 
So I thought I've got to use the, the, the weapon that I've got mm. <laughs> to go to the nth degree. And that's why I chose the umbrella because I knew it would be really hard. I thought this, is, this has to be a hard challenge, but there has to be a solution. Mm. And then get that mindset where you just believe there's a solution, you just keep going till you get it. So that I guess that was the pressure I put on myself, which yeah, again wasn't healthy. And yeah. you talked about how you had manufacturing problems in the early days, struggling with China. Yeah. How did that resolve itself? Well, I think the the big thing behind that was that we we're just going against the grain with the industry that's set up on obsolescence. So um, so this product was going to last longer and get this better experience, but no one really cared in the industry because they just wanted to sell more product. So distribution partners, the whole the whole machine is set up around these things breaking, so that they can put more through, right? And we're um, yeah, we're coming in with this thing, this amazing solution, product market fit mm. again, right? It just wasn't wasn't there. So um, so we there was just we didn't it was like what these people can't see something. It was like they couldn't see it, but it was like the reality is they had a business that we just didn't fit into. So yeah, we got with a quality manufacturer, but it still took a couple of years to get product out of them. Mm. Yeah, so they, they didn't believe we could sell it for one, and it was going to take like five times as much energy to make the thing. Right. So they just thought it was crazy because their whole operation set up to make them efficiently and as fast as possible. So we were just going against the grain massively. So it took you a couple of years to get a good manufacturer? We, oh, we found a manufacturer, but we um, they didn't do anything for ages. We were like, mm. what's going on? We were visiting what? them, and, and it's Chinese, right? And you're talking to the manager there, and he's just sort of shaking his head, and this is the lack of communication. So it's really hard to know what they're thinking. What do you do in that time period where you've got orders coming in? No, we had no orders because we didn't have a product. Oh. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we had people back so in New had, Zealand. So you had the garage product yeah, yeah. that failed. Yeah, so, but we had the people, those couple of shops going, oh, we want, when it comes yes. out properly, let us know, oh, let us know. Yeah. But okay. there's like years down the track. They go, where's these umbrellas? And we're like, oh, God. Now investors are there like, what's going on in China? It's like, oh, God. So eventually we, we basically had to throw some money at them to say we're going to commit to this many thousand units, um, which we probably shouldn't have done to start with. So they gotcha. actually thought, yeah. But then the first production that came out was just rubbish, yeah. So that was a big lesson on quality. So In what way? Um, just so different, these umbrellas to make. There's mm. so much more detail in them. And um, just assumed that a quality manufacturer of umbrellas mm. would be at the level, but we got the container and, and opened it up, and it's like half of them we had to rework, the other no half way. we had to reject, yeah. So uh. they, they took them, like they paid for it, it was fine, but just a real painful lesson on quality. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess just assuming that things will go right on the other side of the world for your product. Yeah. So since then, our, yeah, our presence at the factory has been huge. We go there a lot and we had to put independent quality control and everything. So. And I'd and admit, I'll go for it. You're still with the same manufacturer? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so the factory owner is Taiwanese. Okay. And the factory was set up by the Germans in the 90s. So really good quality set up back then by a German brand. And then um, we just managed to get in there. So we... Um, had a really good contact to get into that factory, a guy by the name of David Haydenthwaite. So he'd been, and he's a Kiwi, he'd been in China for a number of years in the industry. So we were just so lucky that he helped us through navigate that. Um, so if you could go back in time, you would have put more money in there from the beginning, ordered a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I understood. And had they someone had, on the ground to yeah. build a relationship faster? Yeah, we had that as well. Okay. I just think it was, we were up against it, basically, because we were going against the grain of what right. they knew. And I think there's always going to be time for that, and sometimes that's just the way it is. Yeah, so... I guess we just, I just, I just learned patience, you know. It had been like eight years before we even found the manufacturer for me. Mm. So it's just like you kind of just build this patience and you kind of just expect it's going to happen when it's happened. Wow. And after reading Dyson's book, that gave me patience as well because wow. that took him decades as well. So I thought, oh, this thing just takes years. We've just got to be in it for the long haul. And on the manufacturing front, I'd imagine because, as I gather, Blunt is big on sustainability. So mm. that distance or being somewhat removed from the manufacturing equation would be hard to maintain that visibility on 
the practices that are that are happening yeah. over there sustainability wise talk us through some of the challenges that have have cropped up um from that that's from that that's been an absolute journey like from day one we knew that we sort of had to fit into traditional supply chains to make this work like just to get i guess to get the product at the right cost so to the fabrics and just the, the ribs and all that sort of stuff so um that the difference with blunt really is that our stuff lasts so it's the lifespan mm. so as we go down our path it's really about just selecting materials the best materials we can that are most sustainable at the time and as we get bigger we get more options to evolve our own materials but your materials is a, it's a really tough one i think mm. for any sort of smaller company like we're still small in the scheme of things mm. um to actually evolve that like you just look at all birds and they've done phenomenal right to actually do what they've done but what they had to put in it to, to do it so um, so we're really about the lifespan. So if these products mm. can last longer and we can keep repairing them, keep keep them alive, mm. then we know we're on the right path. And it's a really easy thing for consumers to understand in that respect. Mm. Like materials, people don't really know what materials what when it comes to doing the right thing. But if you say, look, this thing's going to last you this long, mm. then I'm doing the right thing with my product. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's funny though when I was working with a client recently and we're talking about the idea of greenwashing. Yeah. And the the challenges when someone's when you know, your iPhone costs more to repair than it does to buy a new one. Yeah. Talk us through, if I say buy a, a, a blunt umbrella right. and I say, hey, Greg, it's it stopped working or there's a broken piece, talk me through that process. I'd come into you and you'd... Yeah, so um, we've got repair shops. So we've got one in Auckland and then one in Melbourne and then one in London as well. So um, so they're, they're really key for getting things fixed. But the, the real key thing is the design of the product so that it's actually repairable. So um, so it's this modular thinking so that, uh. so that the components are almost like products within themselves. So we, when we think of a canopy of our product, we think of it almost like a dress you put on your body so it can come off and on, right? So that means if anything goes wrong with it, you're not talking about fixing an umbrella, you're talking about dealing with a canopy. Right. So the more we can do that throughout the whole product, which we're doing year by year more and more, um, so like the handles now will come off our products like a light bulb. So it's like the analogy of your light bulb blows in your house, you don't throw your house out, right? <laughs> so the same thing on the hand, like we have dogs chewing handles and all sorts of things, but we can actually send a handle out to a consumer and just like fitting a light bulb, they can put it back on their umbrella. How cool. So the more you can do that, the more global you can be with your repair initiatives. Mm. So that that's sort of the vision for the future. So it really starts with the design of the product and for, rather than the workshop side, but the workshop enables it massively. So um, So yeah. Huge, but yeah, the idea that you can repair an umbrella almost seems crazy, but it's you know it's how it always used to be. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's almost bringing back the old to do good for the future. Yeah. yeah so good. Yeah. The collaborations you do with designers like Karen Walker, mm. that's always amazing. Yeah. How do they come about? Um, that really came about just through the PR um we were doing and just hearing her talk about us. <laughs> So there's an article, and she said, oh, I think she said they had seven blunt umbrellas in their house. So they're real fans. Wow. Like, well, we've got to talk to her. So, um, yeah, so we got talking to her, and she was just dead keen to be involved with us just for the belief of who we were. I guess the you know the meaning behind what we are doing totally aligned with what she thought. So it was for the right reasons. It wasn't like a commercial oh. thing, it seemed. Like, it's a real healthy relationship. So the collabs that we've done that have been really awesome have always started like that. The people, they're just in love with our products. Whereas... The type of product we are, it's so easy for some other company or brand to come in and just want to put their name on it, you know, and have it seen to be theirs. Mm. And we've had that a lot as well. So um, so yeah, we've learned a lot in that space for partnerships and what a healthy partnership looks like. That's so refreshing, isn't yeah. it? Because you can just, I mean, and a, and a consumer can smell that from a mile away yeah. when it's just like, oh, this influencer is promoting this product. Exactly. You know, and it's just, 
I think we're getting what's the word wise to it. People um, can sniff out inauthenticity. Yeah, exactly. 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 And so, that's a huge word for us. Authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice Although thing. it is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? You do hear it left, right, and centre. Well, I think because it. it's yeah. actually quite rare to come across people who are honest, genuine, open, let's say, happy yeah. to share all the yeah. messy mistakes, things that went wrong in their lives, or someone that wants to associate themselves with a business for genuine, real reasons because mm. they love the product, as opposed to wanting to make a lot of money from it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. those two can go together, of yeah, course, yeah. but it, coming at it from the right place. Yeah, yeah, I think we've come from the right place from the beginning. Like, the whole the greenwashing around repair and that. Mm. Like people are getting onto that wagon now, but we've done it from day one, really, because we kind of had to, because we had this premium product that people had this expectation on, yeah. and if anything went wrong, we just had to jump all over them with service, so it just came out of that. Mm. So it's been good for our business to, to do that repair side, yeah. so it's like it's all aligned, so the energy's all in the same direction as opposed to tacking on something on the side to look good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that we're lucky in that respect, big wow. time. Yeah. The pricing model is, you know, the, psycho the, the psychology of pricing is a, is a fascinating uh, topic. And I'm sure that, no doubt, a blunt umbrella inherently is more valuable than mm. something you cheap pick up in the in the $2 store yeah. that will do the trick to get from A to B but then break once you've reached the office. Was there any other, that you can share, any other factors on perceived value or, you know, the on the pricing side of things? I think it was just owning a space in the market where no one else was sitting. But um, it really just came about that first price because they're going to cost more to make, so it was like a cost up, yeah. which is not the way to do it, right? So we sort of fell into that, but I think it's been great because when we started, I think every other umbrella was like the $40 mark for mm. a, like the quality offering. Mm. And then there was the Louis Vuitton umbrellas at $700. <laughs> so there's like this massive space in between. So it's hitting it at a point, and we always thought that $100 mark was going to be a like a bit of a big one to get over, get into those three figures. But once we broke that, you know, it's like uh, Dyson, he just puts his products up 100 bucks every time he brings a new model out. But you've got to have the value, right? So you've got to be innovating. The mm. whole offering has to be better and better and better. Mm. So, But yeah, for us, it's value over time. Mm. If you can own your blunt for 10 years and own what? Totally. 20 crappy umbrellas and have mm. a shitty experience. Mm. So it's just getting people's mindset around investing mm. <laughs> you know it's like any investment you've got to put that time factor into it cost per use yeah, exactly yeah yeah and now and knowing you've got that partnership on that journey with you mm. so that if anything does go wrong you've got someone to phone up and say what the hell yeah. <laughs> i draw the line at 700 dollars umbrellas i would never spend 700 <laughs> but that's the power of fashion right the yeah. brands oh man yeah. oh no way but i'm quite uh anti-conspicuous consumption. In fact, I was talking about this with someone the other day, about the uh, the funny thing is, is that those that want to appear rich end up buying all the, the labels and the, the Gucci's and the Louis Vuitton, mm. who's he, what's it's. But those that are, you know, are genuinely wealthy are often okay. flying below the radar. Yeah. And they've got their blunts and their maybe a high quality but discreet German car or whatever it might be but not something that's quality but not showy yeah uh, so yeah I kind of cringe or wince against the idea of, of buying something for yeah, purely well, labels well, we're not, so. and we're not luxury like we, we've said of a premium it's not luxury but we've got this story um, our investor was in Melbourne and he's walking down the street and he saw this homeless guy sitting on the side of the street and he had his blunt umbrella over <laughs> him right and he talked to him and he said, because he didn't make out who he was. Yeah. And um, the guy just gave him this big spiel about how he invested in this umbrella because it was the best one out there because he lives outside, oh, right? Wow. Yeah, so he'd actually bought it, this guy. Been here the homeless. Yeah. 
So that, that was a bit of a compliment, like some of the, you know, people see the value at all levels. It's when it's not the umbrella for people who cost the money or who you'd wow. think would buy it. So that's a really nice story. Yeah. That's an amazing yeah. story. Yeah. Wow. And for the for your you know, your colleague to come across yeah. that himself. Yeah. Wow. That was the early days too, so that was that was super cool to hear that. And what next for Blunt? What's coming up? Uh, we've got another product in the works, which is exciting. Is for me, after twenty odd years of umbrellas, it's definitely good for my brain to do something else. But um I think just what our formula is to do it is just so much more accurate. We've learnt so much from the umbrella and to um to apply it to this next product is, is awesome. But we've found something that's very aligned with umbrellas, which I can't really talk about right yet. <laughs> but there's just um there's a philosophy, we've got this um I guess design philosophy that we've sort of come up with based on um our learnings. And the first thing really for the product is about the human connection. So um like we said before, you love your blunt, right? And so when it came to market, it's like, I've got this product, it's all about functionality and people just having a better time using it mm. and whatever. But when they started saying about love and joy and all those emotions, it's like, well, there's actually a connection here that goes beyond the physical. And um, so we've spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And we really liken it to human-to-human relationships. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, the aesthetic is really important. So that's the collab thing that we talked about mm. before. So, um, so that's the first step and then once they get into the relationship it's more about the other emotions coming through it's like touch feel sound so like when you hold the umbrella in the wind it's got that beautiful smooth feel so that that adds to it because it's a feeling of security and that trust and it's all sort of the stuff that's the basis of a long-term relationship because you're trying to get people on this journey with you with their product over time and so that's where the the collabs actually make a lot of sense from sustainability because you're pulling people into your world that you can be on this other journey over time with so that they just fall in love with their product and when they fall in love with it they want to look after it right when they look after it they repair it and they'll keep it going so that emotional connection is huge so we're trying to just go really deep on that mm. and you know um products today sold so much on that um dopamine sort of buzz all that sort of stuff which is so here today gone tomorrow mm. and that's that fast fashion hit which we just want to be totally against mm. so we're trying to slow stuff down and be more about the oxytocin and all the love stuff mm. so we just feel at a, at a chemical level just mm. doing something better with humans so that's the first one um the second one is um that modular stuff we talked about repair mm. so making sure that when they go out they're actually a product that can be repaired they've actually got that lifespan to them and then um then there's an ambition so we just want to make sure that anything we do has a, has a longer term ambition responsibility we just anything physical we put out into the world like you go to our factory we talk about the hundreds of thousands of umbrellas we sell in the office but until you actually see a pile of them, you don't realise how much physical stuff that is that's being put out into mm. the world. So um, to be responsible for that at a physical level, so that all your actions follow up through that journey of ownership, it's really important. And then, um, yeah, the um, the timelessness is huge. So we can only really do that with products that will be relevant into the future. So um, the umbrella is the same forever, right? And we came along and sort of gave it that upgrade with the hope that that would be relevant mm. for a long time. So you want a product in 20 years people can look at and still go, wow, that is still relevant in my life. I still love the look of it. still functions as I need. Mm. So there's not that many products that are like that in this mm. world. So they need to have that mature design signature attached to them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I can't help but notice that on the couch behind you is a blunt yeah. umbrella. Yeah. And I just thought, how cool would it be to get Greg to open it and just talk us through the, that modular, that, that component tree? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and as you do so, tell us, is it bad luck to open a an umbrella inside? Oh, not a blunt umbrella. No. <laughs> no, we um we say that if you don't put it above your head, it's not bad luck. So <laughs> that's that's how we work it. Are you superstitious? Not at all. It, yeah, same. In not no way. Not at all. No, no. But you know, I always dry right? the umbrellas in the, inside. 
So I'll always have it open, dry. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, I'll just start with the packaging. Like, um, this is actually being updated now. Like, this a real journey with packaging for mm-hmm. sustainability to have less and less going on. So um, this is one that we developed a few years ago, but because it's got this plastic cap on it, obviously plastic's not something you'd want to put into the environment or anything. So we made it so that it actually doubles up as a phone holder. So once you take <laughs> it... <laughs> so this is one of our design principles, is every component should do more than one job. So that once you've got that, you can actually use it like that, and it's got our little logo, so that people, when they've got their phone in it, they can actually see the brand every day. So that's just a little example of, oh, um, of how we're so trying to do cool. things a bit differently. But the product itself... Like it's like a conventional umbrella when it's down, and it's just really because it's so compact. But we start with the handle. So the handle is modular, like the rest of the umbrella. And like I said, it's like a light bulb, so it comes off that easily once wow. you know what to do, but it's only to fall off in that way, so mm. it's a bayonet fitting. The handle strap as well can do that. And the cool thing about it is not only is it repairable, but into the future we can actually bring out different handles. So what I, I love to think of it is like this is the dress, and this is almost like the footwear. Yeah. So you could do like a collab with like a foot, like a shoe brand or something, and do like a leather handle or a curved, like everyone wants something different, right? And oh, the handle strap's okay. the same, that pulls out. So just these pieces coming apart in their own way. You know, you talk about legacy, which in my mind also says, and, and this, this idea of timelessness and in my mind, that curved handle is that classic umbrella mm. handle. Why did you go... Now, I I could take a guess, but I'd love to hear from you. Why did you go with, say, that handle, which is more of a cylindrical straight up and down, yeah. as opposed to the, the curved handle? It was just being neutral, I think, just making it so that it was... Um, the idea was that um, small hands can go at the top and big hands can go at the bottom, and it was a total guess. <laughs> and the other thing was it didn't fit into the packaging, having a curved handle. <laughs> so just silly things that you fall into, right? Yeah. And, um, but a curved handle, it's not, I guess it's it's classic, but it's sort of old-fashioned. It's less practical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why so, did they have it? Is it because the gentlemen's would Yeah, have we've it? done that. We have tried to do it, yeah. but um, it's just not blown. It just seemed like we just fell this handle and it just worked and we were identified yeah. for it. So um, it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, but... um. I think I've seen photos where the gentleman had it over, you know, he might be walking with a lady and the, yeah, the lady's on one arm and the, yeah. the umbrella is on the other. And in, um, in Japan, they use it a lot to hook over onto the rails of the um, when they're in public transport. Ah. Because they're not that tall, they need to extend up and they can hold onto it. So interesting. So it's definitely practical, right? But it's a really horrible hand-holding experience. Yes. Like we're about holding it and it's about that experience in the wind. Yes. So this is the, the most comfortable shape we could get. Great. Yeah. And also just being um, relatively simple, yeah. like no handle grips or anything. So yeah. just simplicity always wins in design. So. Great. Keep keep going. Yeah. So the next thing um, is the canopy. So that comes off just really by unwinding the sky at the top here. There's a little seal there. And then the um, the end here has got these things called um, a blunt tip. So this is our technology, which we've got a patent for. So that just unplugs from the frame. And, and you've then, taken the spring out of the... Yeah, the, spring, so the spring's part of the mechanism for right. the So this is the thing here that was the initial invention. Ah. So that's like a little umbrella in itself, which opens up and creates a soft edge. So that's okay. why there's no point. And it does all these jobs of like making it so it's stronger there, so all the load spread. It completes a tensioning system, which makes it tighter, like we said before. Yes. And um, just a couple of bits of plastic, so really quite cheap to make. Wow. So um, that's good design when you can just get one little thing doing all those jobs. So um, so by taking all those off, you um, can then take the canopy off, and then you're just left with the bones of it, basically. Yeah. So um, so beyond that, that's sort of a journey for us to make all these bones as modular as possible. 
So we have got a design that's coming out that makes all these fittings here so that you can just unplug like a Lego system. Yeah. And then um, and then we're going to be on that. But that's sort of a, a journey in time. So it's about, about getting the most expensive things or the things that may need um, repair or upgrading the most to be the most modular. So the handle and the canopy are the most vulnerable. Yes. So, um, so they're the things that can come off very easily at the moment. And then yeah, as we go down, we um, get more modular. So the shaft's aluminium. Yeah. We have a fiberglass shaft and a carbon shaft on different models. Yeah. So in golf, the golfing world, they don't want any metal on the golf course for lightning, <laughs> which is probably a perception thing as well. But we've had to do that for our sport yeah. model. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, aluminium on the and then fiberglass on the ribs. Superb. And then we've got different engineering. And let's around. let's hear that sound as it goes into its full yeah, extent because that is a lovely sound, isn't it? Yeah. Let's see if we can get it on the microphone. One of the sensor experience. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, so it's got that clunk. Oh yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was good. You know, and that that is all that is so distinct. Yes. You know, so yeah. that's the tautness coming yeah. through, isn't yeah. it? So when you flick that, that tightness you can hear in the yeah. Like no other umbrella does that. They're all kind of tied up here and as they get towards the edge they get really floppy. So we have a thing called a radial tensioning system. So as you push up on the umbrella, what's happening is these ribs get longer, so they're pushing outwards. And normal umbrellas don't do that, they just want to push up. So by doing that, we're actually making this canopy super tight at the edge. So that's the core technology, really. So that's why in the wind, when the wind hits it, that's the first bit that takes the wind. So you want it to be like a really stiff edge, like a wing, so that the wind just flows over it and doesn't want to fight with it. Otherwise, it's doing this, and that's going to fall inside out. Wow. So your control and use is huge. That's really the fundamentals, why it makes it such a pleasurable experience. Yeah. It is. Gosh, that was that was so enjoyable. Ha having the masterclass, having the <laughs> the the yeah, information from the, the horse's mouth. Was... Yeah, and it's interesting that um, a lot of people don't really know the technology and need to understand it. It really is just about how it conveys to them in use mm. and those sounds and the feelings and I have a wrap up question. Great. What advice would you give to your younger self? Um, just relax a bit more and enjoy it, you know, don't, don't get too stressy, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, just, just have faith that the future will work out. I think that's it. And I think if you've got the vision and you've, it's in your head enough, it's, you'll get there. Yeah, you hear it so often from people that have done great things, how they've, they've had a vision and they, um, they don't get there by mistake. Like they get, they're not surprised when they get there because it was, it was in their head from the beginning, you know, as long as you can get that really tight. And once you've got that, I think. You can sort of relax into it and enjoy the journey, knowing that you'll have ups and downs. But, um, yeah, you'll get there if you've got it. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much, Greg. It's You're been welcome. a real treat and actually uh, a highlight for me amidst all the stories. And actually, probably the, the story of the homeless man has got to be a favourite of yeah. mine. But closely followed by the demonstration of the umbrella itself just mm. such a treat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're and welcome. And we look forward to paying close attention to this new release yeah. of a new have to product. Come back. Yeah, and talk about you that will one. have to get, come get back. Give me some new sounds for your podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much and no doubt I, I this will be of great interest to the many, many blunt, happy blunt customers yeah. that are out there in Auckland and New Zealand and abroad. So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it's been a great experience. Thanks.